I happen to uh, be easily distracted. All right, anybody, anybody, I mean, I know you all can, okay, a few of you, that's all right, that's right. There was no need to point at me, you can just raise your own hand, I get it. I'm easily distracted, and so what happens, and just, I, I don't want to, I take my eyes off of Jesus all the time, all the time. I, I think of Peter sometimes and walking on water and him taking his eyes off of Jesus and beginning to sink. And I want to be like, Peter, you're such a goober. I mean, you're walking on water. What are you doing? I do the same thing day in and day out. And we sing a song that calls us to reflect on what a Savior what a savior our big truth this morning jesus god the son paid redemption's price jesus died in our place he offers us forgiveness and covers us in his grace jesus does that for us and so this morning i want you to listen for this big truth and these big ideas these implications of Jesus's redemptive work in our lives as we walk through the story and as we walk through all sorts of reading you'll see it specifically in Ephesians chapter 1 which is our main text this week and I want to just challenge you it's not too late to start if you haven't started following us along with the family discipleship plan please jump in there are resources there. Even if you're just a single adult, there is commentary on each one of these big ideas and ways to help you. But especially if you are responsible as a grandparent, as a parent, for a child, for a young person, for a teenager, use those resources to have spiritual conversations around the big truth and the implications as they play out in our life. You can find that online, tcbchurch.org, or on the app. But I just, again, challenge you, go back, get into those resources, and have conversations about these things this week. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 is where we'll start. In him, Jesus, the Son, we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now listen to this. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Like I said, this summer we've been going through the story. It's a narrative look at really scripture, the Bible, the gospel, as it's revealed in really four movements. Creation, fall, redemption. This is the last week of our redemption. And then we will look at new creation for the next few weeks. This story is incredible but there is an aim this morning that I want you to leave with. And 
whether you know it to be true, and my guess is the vast majority of you in this room know it to be true, be reminded of it, be refreshed in it, and grow in it. The story is all about Jesus. He is the subject of the story. Jesus is the purpose plan to reveal God. He is the purpose plan to have all things united in him. It's all about Jesus. And so this story is so much more than a story. It is the very revelation of God. God making himself and his will known. See, the story reveals who Jesus is. Who God is. Colossians 1 Paul writes and says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible Godhead. Jesus. Do you see the revelation context? And in revelation to Jesus, the story also reveals subsequently who we were, who we are, and who we will be. See, the story is so much more than a story it's not a record of all things but it is a message from the creator to his creation some have called it a love letter right and it is that that's true but again it's more the story is God's self-revealing word for which time itself was built to make known foreordained to make Jesus known and unite all things in him. I, this is the reason John introduces Jesus in the gospel the way he does. So in John chapter 1, John gets the opportunity to introduce Jesus, right? Jesus, God, and this is how he does it beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus, and he calls him the Word, the Revelation, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skip down to verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus is the living word. It's not just a title we give him. The living story, the very revelation of God. God revealed in flesh. God the creator making himself known to his broken creation. Jesus is not just a character that's weaved into the story. Church, hear me. 
Jesus is the story. It is all about him. And as so much every picture, every promise, the presence of Jesus in the Old Testament and the New Testament are actively making Jesus known. And such a revelation, it demands a confession. That's what we're talking about this morning. To see Jesus as God revealed. It demands a confession. It demands a response. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But I want to I spend a good chunk of time this morning and just talk about the story for a moment. And as we do, you got those big ideas that are there. They're in your notes on the app. Follow along with those. You'll see those, these in the text as we walk through. But I, I got a confession. I was slow to put together the story of Scripture. It just didn't quite line up for me. It was, it was, I just was slow to do it. Like, I was a teenager. I'm talking late in my teens. And I still thought that King Saul got kicked out of being king, started persecuting Christians, and was later turned into Paul and wrote most of the New Testament. Some of you who've studied the Bible enough, you know there's only like, you know, hundreds of years between those two guys. They're not the same Saul right and I grew up in church I, I knew all the Bible stories but I really hadn't engaged enough to see how it fit and as a result I didn't see Jesus like I should have in the story it was just this random collection of Bible stories, and I was slow to put it all together I, I just struggled to do that and one of the things that probably hurts us today is that we forget that our Bible was written without chapters and verses. Now, I'm thankful for them. It is a great thing for us to have, and it helps us study, and it helps us communicate. But when those letters were written and those books were written, they were written in this collective letter, this collective book that would almost always be read in whole. And before they were so distracted with everything we're distracted with, before they had TV and before they had phones and before they had their eight-year-olds playing baseball games every night and all the things in between, they would sit down with hours of their time and they would tell these stories. And the cumulative effect of the narrative of the story would saturate the people of God. And let's just be honest, we are so distracted that so often we have no idea how the story even fits. And so for some of you, this will be a review. And I get that. Be reminded as we walk through it. But for some of you, I just want you to see that how in the beginning, God created everything, the universe as we know it, every star in the heavens. He created earth, everything in it and everything on it. And he created Adam from the dirt of the ground and he breathed life into Adam and from Adam he created a helpmate establishing the first family he created a wife he called her Eve and Adam and Eve they lived in this paradise it's called Eden it's this garden it was just incredible it's not a paradise because of the stuff that was in it it was paradise because they had presence with God but Adam and Eve they sinned they sought to be like God. They took 
their eyes off of him and they began to turn their eyes to themselves and they disobeyed a command that God had given them. And in that very moment, sin came into the world and impacted the whole world. That's the fall that we've talked about. And there were immediately consequences. But even in this day, even at this early point, I want you to catch something. I want you to see the picture I want you to see the promise. I want you to see the presence of Jesus even in this moment. When, when they sin, God shows up, and one of the first things he does is he takes an animal skin and he clothes the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Watch this. God can, I'm sure, just create an animal skin. But the reality is it recognized the innocent creation that would be needed to cover their sin and it gave a picture of the lamb who would be sacrificed to cover the sin of men but that's not it there was also a promise to the serpent who had deceived Adam and Eve into this disobedience God acknowledged look you have bruised the hill of man but there is coming a man that will crush your head and a promise of a savior the promise of one who would defeat sin the promise of Jesus and Jesus is also present we we overlook this too much but Jesus is walking in the garden with them he's there they see him he walks with them again the image of the invisible God we see all this right here in this moment. And they're removed from the garden. They're removed from the presence of God. And man, the world begins to fall apart. And they do what God had told them to do, to be fruitful and to multiply. And so they do. And generation after generation goes by. And with each generation, they grow more and more evil until God says, that's enough. I'm going to destroy mankind. But he has favor on a man named Noah and his family. And he tells Noah, I'm going to flood the world, build an ark. You and all your family get in the ark. And that's exactly what happens. And God kills every man, every woman, and every child. But Noah and his family. And if you needed evidence of the seriousness of sin, we get one very soon. And Noah and his family, they get off the ark and they again are told to be fruitful and multiply, and they do. And generation after generation after generation goes by, and again, the people are just pursuing together their own evil, their own sin. And through an incredible event, it's something we call the Tower of Babel. God mixes up the languages of the people and causes the people to begin to spread out across the world. And more generations goes by. And so God finds favor with a man named Abram. Abram. We'll know him as Abraham because God will later change his name to Abraham. And to Abraham, he makes a promise, a covenant, that you will be the father of a great nation. And you will possess a great land. And every other nation and all people of the world will be blessed through you. Well, that sounds exciting. 
except Abraham and his wife Sarah, they're really old. And a nation requires a lot of people. And so they got to get to having those babies, right? And it doesn't happen in the way Abraham thinks it will. And so Abraham and his wife Sarah work out this deal with a hand servant, basically figure out how to create their own surrogate, right? And Abraham has Ishmael. And God says, my promise will not go through your lack of faith in this son, but he will be a thorn in the side of your people. And that has been to this day. In returning to faithfulness, Abraham and Sarah eventually have a son, Isaac. And many of you know the story. Upon having the son, God tells Abraham, go sacrifice your son. And at the last moment, an angel stops Abraham. And the Lord says back to Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 16, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. How can that happen? How can one person, one group, truly bless everybody? People they've never even came in contact with. How can that happen? And you see this promise, this point to Jesus back in these early covenants with God. So Isaac goes on and he has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible, because inside I'm only 13 years old, is Jacob was a smooth-skinned man and Esau was a hairy man. Now listen, if you don't read that verse and go, why do certain things make it into scripture? You're more spiritual than me, all right? So Esau, though, I think is one of the dumbest people in scripture. Because Esau has a part in this promise of God. This promise to be a great nation. This promise for this great land. This promise to bless all other nations. The promise to bring about a savior. And he sells his promise for a bowl of stew. Esau might be the, one of the dumbest people in Scripture. That guy is my boy. I am right there with him. I do that kind of stuff all the time. I take my eyes off of Jesus and I put it on something else. Something lesser. And Jacob begins to have kids. He has 12 sons. They'll go on to make up the 12 tribes of Israel. At the time, his youngest son was with the woman he loved the most, Rachel. This son's name was Joseph, and his brothers didn't like him, so they shipped him off to Egypt as a slave. And while in Egypt, Joseph raised to power, right? He comes up, he he becomes to be second to really only Pharaoh because he interprets these dreams. He realizes there's going to be seven years of prosperity and seven years of famine. And in the prosperity, it sets Egypt up as the first superpower of the world because they're storing everything up. And the next seven years, nobody has anything. So if you've got food, when there's no food, you become a superpower. And everybody starts coming to Egypt to get food, including Joseph's brothers. Joseph recognizes his brothers. He kind of plays with them for a bit, but in the end, he moves 
Jacob, his father, his brothers, the family, the chosen people of God out of Canaan where they were frankly turning to idol worship and intermarrying with people God had told them not to, they were losing their promised family. And they move them to Egypt in the Goshen Valley where there really isn't anything. And there they just begin to grow and multiply so much so that there will come a Pharaoh who does not remember Joseph and thinks they're a threat to us. There might be more of them than there are of us. We need to make them their slaves. And so they do. They become slaves in Egypt. And the people, remembering the promise, going all the way back to Abraham, they begin to cry out, Lord, you promised us a great nation, your great land. We're slaves in a foreign land. I don't see how we're blessing anybody. God raises up a man by the name of Moses who will lead them out of Egypt through plagues and all kinds of crazy things. And man, just wowing power of God. But as soon as they began to spy out the land that God had promised them, they got scared. They began to turn their eyes off of the power of God and put it back to themselves. And as a result, God said, this generation of grumblers and complainers and those who are fearful, you're going to die. You won't see the promised land. And so for 40 years, they wander around in the desert dying. And while this is happening, Moses gives them the first five books of our Bible and the law. The law is an important thing for a great nation. It gives them organization. It points them to God. And in this case, it exposes their sin and their need for Jesus. Moses will die, Joshua will take over, and they will take over the promised land through about seven years of conquest. And after that, it says that Joshua and all the generation after him served the Lord. It's a great time in Scripture. But then we enter into the time of Judges where they begin to compromise. They begin to turn their eyes off of the Lord. And as they turn their eyes away from the Lord, they didn't abandon him. They just compromise. Here's the example. Farmers out in the field, you come visit them and say, hey, what's that statue out there in your field? I say, oh, that's Baal. Baal, I thought you worshipped Yahweh. Oh, we do. We, that's our God. Well, what's that thing in the field? Oh, he helps it rain. They just began to compromise. And so the Lord would send an oppressor. And being oppressed, they would turn their attention back to the Lord and they would cry out for help and God would send a judge. And this would just happen again and again on cycle until the point where the people of Israel are like, you know what our solution needs to be? We need a king. If we had a king, we'd be good. So they cry out for a king and God says, listen, I am your king. Jesus is your king. You know, they cry out for a king and demand one anyway. They set up Saul as the first king and Things go pretty well with Saul for a while, but he too begins to compromise. He too begins to sin and do what's right in his own eyes. And so the Lord then appoints David. We hear a lot about David. He wrote most of Psalms. He's a prominent king in the Old Testament. And to David, he makes a covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 16. And your house, this is the Lord speaking to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. 
Your throne shall be established forever. Forever? That's the promise. Who can fulfill a promise like that? And so David will die and his son Solomon will take over eventually. And then after Solomon, there's a civil war and the kingdoms will split. Jeroboam and Rehoboam, there'll be Israel and Judah. And over the next hundreds of years, they will face a constant pressure of oppression as they continue to sin, as they continue to seek their answers in someone other than Jesus. The kingdom will divide and first Assyria will come and defeat Israel. Take them captive. The Babylonians will come and destroy Judah and the temple. And it will be through this crazy, just insane miracle as the Persians take reign and send the people of God back Give them the materials to rebuild and go back to Jerusalem. And in the midst of all of this, all of this history, all of this life, all of this, there are prophets who are constantly proclaiming Jesus is the answer. It's not this stuff. One of the verses we hear the most is Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Sometimes I wonder if people understand what they're quoting when they quote that and they say that's my verse because the context is the people of Israel had just been taken captive by the Babylonians and they've been moved from their home and they've been put as these second class somewhat citizens in a foreign land. And God has just told his people, you're going to be here. Build your houses, live your life, because you're going to be here. And in verse 10, the verse before this, it says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. I don't know about you. I don't consider myself an old person. But if somebody said, you know, I got a promise for you 70 years from now. I'm just selfish enough to think that's probably not going to work out real well for me. These prophets continue to point to their salvation in something bigger than their land, their nation, the law, the people, and their strength and their might. They continue to point to a Messiah who will reign eternal. All of it about Jesus. And Isaiah writes in Isaiah 9 verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, for this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the host will do this. And so John the Baptist makes way as he proclaims there is Messiah. And Jesus is born of a virgin. Not in the family of Adam that's broken, but born as the Son of God. 
who lives a perfect life and pays the penalty, pays redemption's price with his very life on a cross for the sins of the world. All of it about Jesus. All of it about him. All of it to make God known. After the resurrection, empowered by what they had seen and heard, Jesus appoints apostles to go out into the world and to proclaim the good news of Jesus, the gospel, the story. And that's where we get to Ephesians chapter 1, as Paul, one of these apostles, says, In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Because look at our past, we sure didn't earn it. Which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It is all about Jesus all of it and God has made himself known in his son to unite all things in him and so here is the question of response has Jesus made himself known to you for many of you you've grown up in the Bible belt and many of you know a Jesus but do you know the Jesus? And it does matter. And I want to read you some verses, and I want to try to let you see Jesus' words about himself. God revealing himself. And I want you to understand and to wrestle with saving faith. What is faith that saves? And there is a temptation for us to measure faith by ourselves, by looking at ourselves, by the amount of faith we can muster. Well, that's broken and that doesn't work. Listen, saving faith is measured in who your faith is in. It's who it's in. And I want you to watch this and I want you to see these verses in the context of the whole story as you consider how Jesus paid redemption's price. First, to know Jesus is to know God. Luke chapter 10, verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. Now listen. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. They longed to see God. To hear His voice. They long to see the promise, blessing from Abraham fulfilled. 
They long to see the eternal King of kings. They long to see their Savior. And in front of the disciples, there he stood. Jesus says it more plainly in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. It's a bold statement. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. If you know Jesus, you know God. And to know Jesus is to know him as he has revealed himself to be. Some of the scariest passages in all of Scripture are the ones I'm about to read. They should terrify us, but they should point us to the reality that Jesus is God. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now listen, on that day, many, that's an important word, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name. And cast out demons in your name. And do mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They're standing there, they're saying, we did this, we did this, in your name, in Jesus' name. And Jesus looks back and says, I don't know you. They obviously thought they knew him. They were doing things in his name. But what they knew of him was not enough to save them. They knew a false Jesus. See, to know Jesus is to know him to be worth everything. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me, in other words, die to themselves, and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. A few chapters later, Jesus again in Matthew 16 verse 24 says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Die to self. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Here's what Jesus is saying. To know me is to know that I am worth everything. Your life itself. To know me is to know me as God. 
Listen to some of these examples. Matthew 19, verse 21. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess. This is to the rich young ruler, and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? Because the Jesus we know must be the Jesus that is worth everything. Our life and everything in it. Again, these are Jesus' words. In Luke chapter 9, verse 59, to another he said, follow me. But they responded, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to my home. That's a, that seems like just a, a simple thing. Let me just go back and tell them bye so they know where I'm going. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now obviously, this isn't something about you have to sell everything and you have to do. This isn't a works-based thing. What we're talking about is who you know Jesus to be. Where your faith is, where your longing is. Because, listen, you know Jesus to be worth everything or you don't know him. Because if you don't know him to be worth everything, you don't know him as God. And saving faith demands Jesus be God. If Jesus, if the Jesus you know isn't worth your life and everything in it, let me be plain the Jesus you know is not the real Jesus. Because such a Jesus is not God. I'm not saying you're perfect. I'm not saying you're not like Peter and you don't turn your eyes off of him every second and start sinking back into your sin. But I am telling you, the longing of your heart for those who are in Christ Jesus, know He is worth everything it's part of your very profession of faith Luke 13 says this this is the final passage I'm going to read I'll go ahead and ask the team to come on up someone said to him Lord will those who are saved be few and Jesus said to them Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, there's that word again. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. And then he will answer, I do not know where you came from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. 
but he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Jesus, God the Son, paid redemption's price. And your eternity rests in whether or not you know Him. Because in Him, time was built to reveal God. In Him, all things are united in its purpose. Because to Him, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is God. He's not something I just get to put on the side of my life. To know Him in saving faith is to die to self and to cry out, You are everything. You are everything. You want to know what saving faith looks like. You want to try to measure it. Don't measure it in what you can muster or your works that you can do, but measure it in who you put your faith in. And He is either God who is worthy or He is a fake Jesus who still allows you to be God of your own life. Perhaps today, for the first time, you've kind of heard the story, the gospel, the work of Jesus as God revealed himself to you, paying the penalty for your sin on the cross, that through faith in him, you might have eternal life. I just want to challenge you, if that's you, in just a moment, we're going to sing. I want to ask you to get up, go right out these doors and to your left. There's an area called the hub. There's counselors back there and people to keep talking to you about this story, about the God who is Jesus. Church, listen. Some of you have grown up in a culture where your faith is in a Jesus, but it's not the Jesus who is God. And I don't know what your role might be. I don't know what you might hold on to. I don't know what traditions. I don't know. You might be a deacon. You might be a teacher. You might be a life group God. But the reality of the matter is, what matters is do you know Jesus as God? Is your faith in Him? And nothing, nothing less than Him will suffice. And I want to challenge you. As we sing this song, go out these doors, find a counselor, and go talk to somebody. Just wrestle through that with somebody. Engage through that and talk through that. But don't leave this place in confusion and who your faith is in. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your son Jesus. The revelation of yourself. Lord, I pray through the power of your Spirit in this place, in these people, you would reveal yourself. 
May our eyes be opened to see your son as God. And as your church, Lord, may we be reminded and rejoice. He is our Savior. He is the Creator. He is God. And Lord, if there is anyone here who does not know you, Lord, I pray that that revelation would so overpower them that they would bow the knee and they would confess with their life that you are worth everything, that you are God, and that you have paid redemption's price so that they could be reconciled to you, united in your son Jesus. Father, do a work as we sing and as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.